This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. On tonight's show, it is theatre, 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 and then some more theatre. But as always, I like to find some of the rabbit holes behind each production. So if you are sitting comfortably and have unwrapped your noisy candy and silenced your phones, the curtain is about to rise. I know absolutely nothing about Dungeons and Dragons. I am terrible at coming up with Halloween costumes, let alone inhabiting the many worlds of cosplay or Comic-Cons. So I am guessing that when playwright Kui Gwen wrote a dramatic comedy romp into a world of fantasy role-playing games with murderous fairies and succubi, a leather-clad dominatrix she-devil and an ogre who has given up menacing to become a couch potato addicted to 1990s television, shows, he was definitely not imagining people like me in the audience. But even if you don't know what a Tiamat is or the rules on the use of magic in Dungeons and Dragons, the play She Kills Monsters is still a hilarious and sweet story of friendship, learning about your family through their dreams and aspirations, dealing with loss and the acceptance of people for who they are. Oh, and fighting and death. There is a lot of fighting and dying though sometimes the dying is only temporary. She Kills Monsters opens at Maplewood Barn next week, and here to tell us more is its director, Chris Bowling, and actor Ada Chapman, a.k.a. Chuck, our guide to the world of Newlandia and our search for the lost soul of Athens. Athens, Ohio. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Chris and Ada. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Chris, someone described the play as an homage to the geek and warrior within us all. How much has Dungeons and Dragons been part of your life and how much warrior and geek are you? Well, um, let's see. I have been, personally, I've been playing the game for almost as long as it has existed. My history with it goes back more than 40 years. Wow. Yeah, I started playing um, at recess in elementary school and uh, it's been in one way or another a part of my life ever since. And on the warrior and geek scale, where are you? Geek pretty high. I don't know about warrior. <laughs> Ada, on the spectrum of warrior and geek, what percentage are you of each of those? Ooh, I'm with Chris on the, the warrior thing. Not too sure there, but I'd say pretty geeky. Scale one to ten, <laughs> solid seven and a half. So She Kills Monsters is not terribly old, although it is set in 1995. It was first performed in 2011 at the Flea Theatre in New York's Tribeca District. Chris, what is your history with this play? Well, I first heard about it several years ago. Stevens College did a production of it, and I just saw the title and was intrigued and looked it up and saw what it was about and immediately bought a ticket and went and saw it. And I very, very much enjoyed it. And then uh, I was on the uh, play selection committee at another theater and floated the idea and then uh, of doing it. And it received a lot of positive input. And then we found out that Maplewood was planning on doing the show. So, I, you know, I was happy. I, I didn't care which theater did it, just as long as uh, somebody was going to bring it here. And I knew I wanted to be involved when it happened. So give us a synopsis of the play, Chris. 
Okay, well, all right, this is my quick synopsis, is that a uh, young woman who whose family was killed in a car accident, her parents and younger sister, she's cleaning out her house and she discovers this Dungeons and Dragons adventure that her younger sister wrote. So she takes it to a local game store staffed by Chuck, who is played by Ada, and asks him to explain what this is about and, and run her through this adventure so she can get an idea of what this thing was that her sister was so interested in. And within this adventure, her sister's character appears in this adventure. And so she interacts with, in a way, a proxy or avatar of her sister. And through that really um, gets a lot of closure with the loss that happened. And there's kind of a dual world going on. So sometimes we're in the real world where Agnes is talking to her colleagues or people in her real life, her boyfriend, but then somehow they also morph into the into the fantasy world too, right? So there's kind of this dual level. Exactly, exactly. And, and I've kind of staged it that way too, to make it like there's a pretty clear demarcation between the real world and the, uh, and the world of the fantasy game. Although in some places it gets kind of blurred and uh, mixed together. Well, I want to come back to the staging in a little while. But Ada, you play Chuck, who guides the Dungeons and Dragons novice, Agnes, as well as the audience. You help us through Agnes's quest to find the lost soul of Athens. So tell me in what way this play speaks to your heart. Really, I'd say it's this idea of connection between Agnes and all of Tilly's friends. And those are two main characters. And that's really where I feel sort of a connection is I've always struggled to connect with other people and having this bridge, creating this bridge between her and her sister's friends. I'd say in some way, I'm able to tie it back to my own life. I'm able to pull from that. So Chris, tell us a little bit about some of the main characters we meet in the play. Well, okay, so the main character, the uh, center of it all is Agnes, who is described as just perfectly average in every way. She's uh, in her mid-20s, she's a a school teacher, and um, seems more or less stuck in a kind of mundane rut in her life. Then, let's see, another, uh, well, then, of course, there's Tilly, or Tilius, um, which is her, the character that her sister created for this adventure, but you see a lot of um, stuff coming through that clearly is, is meant to represent the person, not the uh, character. It's re- meant to represent uh, Tilly as a person, not the character that she plays within the game. Uh, and then, of course, there's Chuck, who is, uh, as you said, Agnes's guide. Then uh, they, they've got an adventuring party of um, there's Lilith, who's a very bold and brash she-devil. Calliope, who is a uh, elven... Um, I'm not sure what class she would be in the Dungeons and Dragons system, but probably a ranger or something. She's like their their woodland guide, and she's very unemotional and uh, rather Spock-like, actually. <laughs> and then there's Orcus, who is um, the, you also mentioned, is the uh, former head of the underworld who's now just wants to sit around and eat cheese whiz and watch TV. <laughs> And then all of them are actually representing real people in real life, too, who by the end of the play, you get to meet them as well. But really, I think that Chuck is really the unsung hero of this thing, because if you looked at this in reality, it would be Chuck and, and Agnes are sitting at a table and they're talking. So Chuck is the one who is breathing life into all of these characters. He's interpreting them and he is making them come alive. And I think he does just an amazing job and also 
uh, displays incredible empathy for um, someone his age and really like understands, I think, on a deeply intuitive level what it is that Agnes is really looking for and kind of helps her find that. We should definitely talk about the fighting as there is a lot of it. The playwright actually worked as a fight director when he first went to New York and taught stage combat at Columbia University. So no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when there's a stage instruction that reads, and in the greatest fight ever to be seen on a theatrical stage. So Chris, the master of local stage combat, Adam Bretsky, is busy on another stage right now. So talk to me about choreographing fighting and what the challenges are. So actually, um, Adam did have a hand in it, although he was mostly assisting Dana Baki, who is also an incredibly accomplished fight choreographer. So she did, I would say, the majority of, of the choreography. She and Adam worked together on it. I had a small amount of input into the the final climactic battle um, with Tiamat, the five-headed dragon. But yeah, really, Dana is the hero of, of all things fight-oriented. And there is a degree of goriness to some of the death scenes in the play. There's some graphically ripping out of a throat, an explosion of body parts, dismembering, and there are kicks to the head, multiple stabbings. And beneath it all is the motto of the playwright that whatever it has... It has to be awesome. So, Chris, take us behind the scenes of the special effects and your quest for awesomeness. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, we are limited to what, you know, what we can accomplish on a community theater budget. um, But we're always centering that with it has to look great. It has to look fantastic. So a lot of our special effects are still in progress, um, working some of those out. So uh, I want it to be entertaining and also not messy or create any kind of uh, danger situation. <laughs> like, we're not going to have big pools of blood on the stage. <laughs> so you were talking earlier about how you make it as obvious as you can that now we're in the real world, now we're in the fantasy world. What? How have you done that with lighting? What have been your tricks on that? So the way I've got it is the stage consists of some platforms that can enter and leave the stage area, and those represent the real world settings and then when they're off stage, they get swapped around to be something else, and then they come back. But yeah, definitely the the imaginary world definitely dominates the stage, and the real world is almost a uh, is almost seen as an intrusion into that fantasy state. Ada, there are a number of themes running alongside the comedy and the fighting things that many high schoolers and young people deal with at some point. Talk to me about some of those themes and whether as young cast members you have found catharsis in the play well i would say again some of the biggest themes are like connection and the idea of being understood agnes never understood tilly until she started participating in dnd and i think for a lot of young people especially today it's this constant struggle to find who you are what is your identity so that idea of discovering yourself, understanding yourself, but also helping other people to understand you. I think that's something that a lot of young people, especially a lot of us in the cast, tend to relate to. Chris, I feel like we should definitely talk about costumes. (laughs) As if you are following the script closely, there are some pretty saucy outfits. As Agnes says, seriously, does no one here like wearing all their clothes? Plus, you have a Conan the Barbarian and all manner of monsters. Talk to me about the costume design. Who have you been working with on that? 
So I've been lucky enough to have Sarah Jost and Jolene Metzen as the head costumers. Also, Dana, who is our fight choreographer, has also lent a lot of uh, help to that, too. The three of them are, are themselves cosplayers, and so they've got just a perfect eye for this sort of thing. And they, they have a lot of resources to find all the... Uh, the uh, fun accessories and they, they just use a lot of imagination in uh, in realizing those things and again I sometimes feel that the playwright really wanted to write a movie script and not a play script because he seems totally unconcerned with mundane things as like actually needing time to change costumes <laughs> or uh, or you know the the actual physical execution of all of these things. So it's a constant balancing act between again, you know, you get you want to get out there and get what what's going to uh, convey what this monster is, but also you know you're limited by budget, of course, but also like how much time do you actually have to change into you know go from being an orc to a bugbear two pages later. <laughs> Ada, what are some of your favorite moments in the play? It's so hard to just choose one. I would say. There's a scene where Chuck meets Miles, Agnes's boyfriend, and there's this complete misunderstanding on uh, the fact that they're just playing D&D. Of course, boyfriend showing up at the house, there's some other guy there, there's going to be some confusion, and Chuck does not clear it up well. It's one of the only scenes I get to fight in. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great scene. They are definitely talking at cross purposes the whole time. Chris, last question. Obviously, you want audiences to leave the play having laughed a lot and had fun with the characters. But what conversations do you hope people have in the car going home? Well, one, I just hope that they walk out of the theater saying, that was awesome. (laughs) So that's, of course, the number one thing. But yeah, I do think I, I want them to think about people that feel neglected, people that feel left out, people that feel excluded, and just to have a deeper sense of empathy and understanding for everyone, or people who are in those groups to feel, you know, a certain sense of connection and identity and say, oh, yeah, look, I am seen, you know, I understand this, I relate to this. Also, it's just the whole aspect of Agnes going through this mourning and acceptance is just incredibly moving. I have yet to not cry at the end of this show and we've you know i've seen it in rehearsal over and over and over again and it gets me every time well she kills monsters opens at maplewood barn theater on thursday june the 16th and runs for two weekends closing on sunday the 26th of june showtime is 8 p.m and remember that as maplewood barn is an outdoor theater bring plenty of bug spray along with your blanket or camping chair and a picnic You can find out more and see the full cast list at maplewoodbarn.com. And Chris Bowling and Ada Chapman, thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes. Thank you. Thank you. There can be few people who have not either read or been read to the Dr. Seuss book, The Cat in the Hat. It is a book of 236 words and 31 illustrations. So how do you take a 60-page book that takes around 10 minutes to read and turn it into a 30-minute play? And how is it that the person adapting the play is not a beloved children's author or playwright, but rather an intense and brilliant 
brooding director of adult theatre, whose work is often experimental adaptations of hefty works by Chekhov, Strindberg, Euripides and Virginia Woolf. A director whose critics refer to who as, and I quote the London Guardian here, as high-minded and humourless, a kind of hatchet-faced governess intent on feeding her audiences with the improving and bleak. So not the kind of person who springs to mind when one thinks of the bubbling joy and impishness of The Cat in the Hat. But the stage adaptation of The Cat in the Hat was originally adapted and directed by this very same alleged hatchet-faced governess, namely Katie Mitchell, regarded by her fans as Britain's greatest living stage director. So yes, a polarising figure. She changed not a word of the original book and only added one word, fishy. And her adaptation of The Cat in the Hat opens tonight at the University of Missouri's Studio 4 Black Box Theatre, directed by my guest, Casey Lynch. Hello, Casey. How lovely to have you on the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I have to admit that a play aimed at three to six-year-olds is normally something I would pass on, both in terms (laughs) of going to see it and talking about it on the show. But I am fascinated by the whole Katie Mitchell component. What made you want to direct this play? Oh, that is a great question. I think part of it is my love for The Cat in the Hat. I mean, you're right. It's one of those books, like seldom you find someone who has not read (laughs) The Cat in the Hat. (laughs) And so I kind of have found myself in this like area of children's theater that I never expected. I would find myself directing children's theater. But I directed Charlotte's Web back in 2020, and it was a blast. And so when I heard The Cat in the Hat was our option for for this summer for SRT's season, I was like, that sounds right up my alley. (laughs) I I wanted to get back into the, the children's theater world because it is so whimsical and fun and zany and reminds you to use your imagination and, and think about all the different possibilities that exist out there in the world, um, all within a 30-minute children's theater play, <laughs> which is, um, I think, really special to me. Do you think you might stay in the world of children's theater as you progress your career, or you think like, yeah, it's just nice dipping in and out of it every now and again? I don't know. I don't know. But it keeps coming back into my life. So (laughs) who knows where I'll end up. Um, But I definitely enjoy doing children's theater with adults and with younger audiences as well. Um, We have a couple middle school age children in our cast. So it's been really, really fun to, to work with people of college age, of middle school age, and be able to put all of our collective worldviews together to make something really exciting for audiences. Mm. Well, tell us the backstory and how a director who is referred to as both a vandal of classic texts (laughs) and also by Benedict Cumberbatch as a real European master craftswoman. How did Katie Mitchell come to adapt The Cat in the Hat? Oh, yeah. Um, So... I have to I have to tell you a little a funny little story. I took a advanced directing class this past semester with Dr. Claire Seiler at the University of Missouri. It was amazing and awesome. Love Dr. Seiler. And we used a textbook called The Director's Craft, uh. which was written by none other than Katie Mitchell. And I did not put the two texts together, the the textbook and the Cat in the Hat script. I had already had the script for Cat in the Hat. I don't know where my mind was. I just didn't put it together. And one day the light bulb went off. I'm reading this textbook with all these like really deep and philosophical and practical ideas for how to direct theater. 
And I was like, this is the same person who wrote The Cat in the Hat. How can that be true? And so I did a little digging of my own. And um, Katie Mitchell talks about how adapting this book was a love letter to her children. Um, it was just something she thought that she could share in, in theater with her children, a way of doing that. And I think that's really sweet and kind. And I love that that's the origin story of how this children's book became a theatrical piece. Yeah, I think she said, like all working mothers, I want to share what I do with my child. But it's hard. It's hard to explain what I <laughs> do. Is. And so she wanted to do a show for children who were learning to read. And she said, I think that they looked at lots of books, but a lot of books for young children have got animal faces and uh, they're about animals. And so their faces aren't entirely, you know, human. And she wanted to do something that wasn't using masks, but that had that animal human component. I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting, too. And so the cat in the hat became the book. Yes. There are, I guess, multiple philosophies on adapting a book. How true you stay to the story, what artistic liberties are allowed, and to what extent the source material haunts the adaptation. So if you think about the movie of The Cat in the Hat, the book is just a starting point and it goes off in different directions. It develops the characters. Whereas Mitchell's play is an adaptation of the actual physical book rather than the story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that has been, I think, the big challenge for for us in the rehearsal room, filling in some of the the gaps of, you know, it's a 10 minute read, the the script itself, because it is exactly written from what is in the book, uh, which I really think is nice how, um, I mean, why fix something that isn't broken? That book is iconic. The words are iconic, the rhymes. Um, I think Katie Mitchell does a good job of making sure she preserves that that nostalgia of the book, the knowing of the book, the um, the the shenanigans <laughs> that happen in the book. But that being said, in order to make it a longer show, um, you know, we have to experiment with some physical comedy with the cast. We were lucky that Mitchell writes in quite a few stage directions for us to to play with. Now we can't do them all exactly as written, and some of them are very vague, like. My favorite is blowfish moment. (laughs) What that that means, I don't know what that means to other directors, but we've we've played with it quite a bit in rehearsal and found some some funny bits to do that I think the audience will enjoy. But that has been the challenge for us is, is playing with that physical comedy, making sure we're being faithful to what Mitchell has has given us because it is so important to her as she writes that this play is faithful to the book itself. And what she means by faithful to the book is that in her original set at the National Theatre in London, they considered each of the 31 illustrations down to the minutest detail, even adding shading lines to the underside of the stage furniture, balancing books at the exact gravity-defying angle as in the book. That every picture you look at in the book, if a child was sitting there looking at it, they could look at the book and look at the stage and it's exactly the same. It's the same colors, scheme, the same, every, all the angles, everything is the same, which is fine if you're the National Theatre in London. <laughs> yeah. <But> how fastidious <laughs> is your production compared to Mitchell's original? And how much flexibility are you allowed to have according to the license? We have quite a bit of flexibility. Um, but that being said, our, our designers have been great in helping us think through how we can 
make some of these pictures, these stage pictures, look just like they are in the book, just like the the National Theater's production. Now, that is not going to be true of all of the the scenes, <laughs> just based on what we, we have to work with. But we're definitely using the same color schemes, trying to like really stage some of those iconic picturesque scenes and the illustrations on the stage live in front of the audience. And we do play around with, with our own take on certain things, which is partially logistics and, and partially like directorial vision and such, but we're doing our best. It's incredible how exact she was with her original staging. Just the detail on the clothing, like if there was a little bit of shading on the child's clothing, then they they stitched a line down the outfit. I mean, are you doing it to that extent? We're we're putting a, a little a little bit in. Um, I, I can't say we're shading everything because <laughs> that would take so so long. And this process, we started rehearsing on the twenty third of May, so it's only been about oh, gosh. two weeks and change. And we open on Thursday, so it's it's kind of like a we as a group have to decide what is most important to us. And sometimes the shading gets left behind. <laughs> um, but rightfully so, in order to make sure that the story is still being told in a way it deserves to be told. When the play was staged in 2009, the London Guardian critic commented that it's all perfectly charming, but there's a madness in the Zeus story that Mitchell hasn't yet caught and that it misses some of the wildness and anarchy that has endeared the book to children for five decades. What are your thoughts on that? That is a great question. Um, I wonder if just by <laughs> just by having a smaller space and less resources than the National Theatre, some of that chaos <laughs> might be back in our production. <laughs> just because our space is limited, um, it's limited to what we can what we can fit. We're in our black box theater, so we're, we're we can be cramped at times. And I think that actually adds that that level of organized chaos. It's not all chaos. We're also trying to work with incorporating the audience in certain parts, which I think also um, you can't really predict how the audience is going to react to these audience interaction parts. So that also adds a little bit of, um, I think, chaos to the show itself, this unknown, this improv aspect to it. There's an original score and sound effects that accompany the play written by composer Paul Clark for trombone, violin, bass and percussion. Your production is in Mizzou Studio 4, Black Box Theatre, which is relatively small. So what choice did you make on how to present the musical accompaniment with the play? Sure. So we actually decided to use our own sound design um, rather than the actual provided design. And part of that is because we are a traveling production, so we can only have so many sound effects. We're doing a lot ourselves, so like with whistles and vocalizing certain things. But we did, halfway through the process, realize we needed some sort of musical accompaniment just to, to bring up that energy, to show how, how wild, obviously you can only get so wild in a in a theater, trying to keep everyone safe, everyone's body safe and everything. But that music added a really important component that I think we weren't necessarily sure we needed and realized halfway through that we the music really brought it to another level. Mm. But when we travel, at least we have our, our set cues that we have worked out and designed together that work for our production. So we didn't actually use the package that was sent along with the script. When you travel, are you taking this on the road? So we are um, traveling to three places in Colombia um, as a part of our run of the show. So we have... 
a performance on Monday the 13th at an after-school summer camp um, called the Moving Ahead program um, in Columbia. Uh, we have a couple theater students who work for that program, so we're partnering with them to bring our movable set and all of our props to them to perform. And we will also be performing the following day, Tuesday the 14th, at the Thompson Center, which I think will be really nice. We've had the Thompson Center come to us before for performances, but we have never in my time here traveled to them. So that's another challenge that comes along with this show. This cast is also their own crew in putting together this traveling show. The book ends with the mother coming home and asking the children, did you have any fun? Tell me, what did you do? With a final question from the narrator to the reader, what would you do if your mother asked you? So if it was Katie Mitchell emailing you to ask, did you have fun? Tell me, what did you do? What would you say about Katie's Sue's play? (laughs) (laughs) I would say that I've had a lot of fun. Um, So many laughs in that rehearsal room. We... We've played a lot of games together. We've done a lot of bonding together. We have laughed over the script, over the silly shenanigans that, you know, we've read about but never actually tried to put in our own bodies. And suddenly we're on stage doing these wacky things that we've never done in real life. (laughs) And it's kind of fun to be able to play and take ourselves out of the structure of the real world for a little while to, to play with deconstructing our bodies and and moving around the stage in weird ways and interacting in in new ways with each other. Um, So it's been a lot of fun. I wish you were doing an adult-only show where we could have wine. Oh, my God, that sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, you know, I'm just not going to sit in a a room full of three- to six-year-olds, but if there was a grown-up version where we got to bring cocktails, that would be awesome. That sounds amazing, and I'm noting that for the future. (laughs) Well, Dr. Zeus's The Cat in the Hat, adapted for the stage by Katie Mitchell and directed by my guest Casey Lynch, opens at Studio 4 at the University of Missouri tonight. There are performances tomorrow and Saturday at 7pm and 11am performances tomorrow, Friday and Saturday, plus a final 2pm matinee on Sunday, plus those additional shows that Casey talked about that are specific to certain venues. You can find out more at theatre.missouri.edu and Casey Lynch thanks for giving me a chance to go down such a great rabbit hole and for making time to chat yes thanks so much for having me in a remote one room cabin in Alaska a man is jolted awake by a bedraggled stranger barging into his home wearing a wedding gown and veil and silver satin slippers outside a blizzard howls and the world has disappeared into a total whiteout Inside, the man is huddled, asleep in blankets. Who is this human icicle? How does she arrive at a cabin far off the beaten track? Why is she wearing a wedding dress? And why is the man hiding from the world? And so starts the Cindy Lou Johnson play Brilliant Traces, about two people reflecting on their escape from society, what their futures might be, what it takes to recover from grief, and how vital our need is to connect with others, pertinent and timely after our two pandemic years.
Brilliant Traces is the upcoming play at Talking Horse Productions, directed by Talking Horse's founder, Ed Hansen, and performed by just two actors, Adam Bretsky playing Henry Harry, he of the remote cabin, and Natalie Botkins, the ice-encrusted bride, all three of whom are here to chat about their production. Good evening, one and all. Hello, hello. Evening. Hello. Thanks for having us. So back in the before times, 2020 was going to be the year of the woman at Talking Horse Productions. And then, of course, it became the year of something else. So, Adam, tell me the history of how Brilliant Traces ended up as a Talking Horse production. Well, you know, I read this script a a couple of years back and the imagery is something that always stuck out to me. Um, Just to kind of give people a little bit of my history, I got divorced in 2015. And in part of that process and figuring out what I wanted to do to heal, one thing I looked at was doing something called Firewatch, where you would literally go out into these remote areas in a uh, cabin or something. And and literally all you do is watch for fires. But something about that seemed really appealing to where I was at the time. And when I read this script a few years back, it really reminded me of that isolation that I felt. Uh, And as we went through two years of the pandemic, I really thought to myself, I bet a lot of people are feeling this way now. And it made it very culturally relevant. And so kind of coming back to my selections for 2022, I revisited this play and I just really couldn't get it out of my mind. Ed, you stepped in to direct this intense no room to hide play between two strangers in a remote Alaskan cabin. What draws you to this play? Well, you know, the first time I read it, I thought it was just kind of a quirky theater vehicle. I I wasn't really sure what to make of it because the characters both are almost surreal in their their approaches to life. But as I would go back and and reread the play, which I like to do when I'm considering directing something. I like to read it multiple times before I decide. I could really see the wounds that both of these characters have and the fact that in the course of the play, they almost take turns trying to console the other one or trying to to help the other one to heal. I just found it to be kind of a fascinating story and a play that was really kind of unlike anything I'd ever read before. Natalie, you have an absolutely huge opening monologue that goes on for the best part of three pages. And in fact, your whole role makes my brain ache as you have so many (laughs) emotional ups and downs and energy swings. Was this a role that you had to be talked into or one that you've been dying to do for ages? Um, Actually, no, I read the script for this show and I immediately was like, I would love to tackle this challenge. (laughs) Um, I read that opening monologue and... It just really like clicked with my brain of like, there has to be some way that I can make this relatable to people because she's all over the place and and frozen solid from being in a snowstorm and saying things that don't make sense. And I was really excited to have the opportunity to bring that to life. Tell us a little bit about your character, Rosanna, without giving too much away, but how much of, of you is in her Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think that I put a lot of myself into her where I can. She's very high strung and has a lot of energy and I'm a person with a lot of natural energy so I definitely lean on that in those moments. And what do we know about her? At the beginning very little. She's been driving for days and days. 
and out in a snowstorm walking for over an hour and is frozen and is just trying to find some escape from the cold. Okay, we'll leave it at that then, without giving too much away. And Adam, <laughs> Adam, without giving away any spoilers, obs again on your character, tell us a little bit about Henry Harry and what, you, well, I guess you kind of answer that, what you drew on to make him real to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Henry is a man that's that's been through some tragedy and how we all adapt to living life after tragedy is is different. And I think Henry has adapted to that by isolating himself to decide that if if he removed himself from the chaos of people that he could have a greater control over his life. And so he's gone to great lengths to put himself at a place where he's very unlikely to run into people that will affect his life in any other way other than what he has planned. Ed, a director's job is to put together the imaginative and intellectual shell in which the action of a play takes place. You're creating the world that we, the audience, will observe and hopefully be moved by. And when you only have two actors helping you to do that, there's a lot of suspended reality that you are all carrying. But tell me, what traces of Ed Hansen, the director, will we see in this production? Hmm, boy, that's that's a good one. Um, well, one of the things we've been working with, and I suppose that I'm driving the mule train on this, is that there are some scenes where there is very in-depth conversation between the two. Uh, and in those scenes, I let the, the pacing sort of be a natural thing, not worrying about whether they're going too fast or too slow, but just making sure that they're conveying what it is that each character is is trying to say. There are other scenes where... The casual conversation kind of takes over, or maybe it's a scene with a lot of repetition where somebody's trying to drive a point and so they they say the same thing several times. And so what I'm trying to do with those scenes is to change the tempo of the speech itself with both characters to kind of speed through those scenes, much like you would do if you were having an argument with somebody and you keep repeating the same point, Mm. you tend to get faster because of the urgency of trying to convey what it is that you're trying to say. There are several places in the script where one is almost doing a monologue, but they're occasionally interrupted with a no, or I see, or (laughs) such, such comments like that. And so we're, we're trying to play with the tempo in those, those scenes too, so that it becomes more like a monologue, looking for places where the dialogue needs to overlap a little bit with a sense of urgency with both characters to make their points. So I think that that's probably what I'm um, putting more of my stamp on than anything is is to make sure that the the dialogue um, flows, but not always at the same pace and with the same urgency. Yeah, and I'll say that Ed is very much an actor's director. He has a great analysis of the script, and as he's watching, he'll ask Natalie and I questions about, you know, well, why did you say something that way? And it's not a way of telling us you should do this differently or you should do it my way, but really just putting it in a place where we have a reason to go back and maybe try something different to see if we can gain another emotional level from it. Adam, the the play was written 33 years ago, and mm-hmm. our sensibilities have changed a lot since then, especially over the past five or six years. And there are definitely moments in the play 
which feel a little socially unacceptable, such as how <laughs> when she collapses in his living room, he undresses her and puts her to bed. He decides to kiss her without really asking her. There were moments in the play which 10 or even five years ago I would not have blinked at. And now I think, ooh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there. I've, I had those same thoughts. There's a lot of these moments where it's like, well, gosh, what would you do? I mean, honestly, it's, I think the thing that sticks out the most to me is if somebody crashed at your doorstep right now, the very first thing you would do is pick up your cell phone and call somebody. <laughs> but of course, 30 years ago, we didn't have that ability. Um, I think when you really invest in the characters and you start learning their stories and how they tick, you realize that some of these things that happen, just like the elements that you describe, they're not done out of any sinister mentality. They're they're really done out of, well, I have to help. It must be ever more difficult as directors and actors and artistic directors when you're choosing plays to take into account the sensitivity of the age we live in and the fact that we can't just not do plays that were written 30, 100, 200 years ago. Right. They're still relevant, but how do you get around that? Adam, have you come across that before and what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, I think the hardest thing for a lot of community theaters is that Popular musicals that high schools have done for ages are, as you say, they're no longer really culturally relevant and no longer really acceptable. I think where you have to look at everything is in the lens of the characters that are there. Hmm. And as Ed was just speaking to, I think the actions that happen in these play, it's easy to read that with the 2022 lens and say, oh my gosh, this this would never be acceptable now. But when you actually look at the story that's being told and the characterization of, of each person, there's a reason for that momentum and that shift. And as Ed mentions, there's never this idea of Henry praying on Rosanna that's that's collapsed there. But for instance, when he undresses her from her wedding gown and cleans her, it is because she has just said that she is filthy and exhausted and in terrible pain. And so it's not a sexual thing. It is a I have to help my fellow human being thing. Hmm. I'm going to give the last words to Natalie and Adam. You are both, I find you both very compelling actors who I always enjoy watching on the stage. Adam, tell us something that you love about working opposite Natalie. Oh my gosh. Well, that's a wonderful question. And this is my first time working at opposite Natalie. And I, I just have to say, I have been completely enamored with her performance watching how she comes prepared to rehearsals and just finds different things in these walls of text. And as you mentioned, takes a 30-year-old script and makes me feel like it was written for this day and age. It's absolutely incredible. And it's been a long time since I have been in a show and felt like I've really had to work to keep up. And so I have felt that way throughout this entire process. And Natalie, what makes working with Adam such a special experience? 
Well, he is an excellent scene partner. He's very easy to just connect with when we're working on things. Um, it was really easy for me to stop looking at my book because he was just there and always like emotionally ready to build off of whatever I give him. And then he is ready to give me things that I can build off of. And I feel like we've found this really good give and take in all of our work together. The Cindy Lou Johnson play Brilliant Traces opens at Talking Horse Productions on Friday, June the 17th and runs for two weekends, closing with a 2pm matinee performance on Sunday, June the 26th. To find out more, visit TalkingHorseProductions.org and Ed Hansen, Natalie Botkins and Adam Bretsky. Thank you so much for giving us a peek behind the curtain and taking time to chat. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you, Diana. I often wonder when, back in 1961, the people of Arrow Rock thought, I know, let's organise theatre performances in our old church, whether they could possibly have foreseen the phenomenal success that would follow. In those days, as the theatre's first artistic director, Henry Swanson, wrote, living conditions were terrible. Half the town was in shantytown shape. Our water came from the Santa Fe Spring in gallon jugs with bugs swimming in the water. Kansas City Power and Light had to rewire the town from the highway just to get 100 ampere service to the theatre. Could those early founders possibly have imagined that one day their historic church would become a 416-seat auditorium, attracting professional actors from across the country performing in Broadway quality productions with annual audiences of 33,000 people from around the state and beyond. And of course, being a Brit, I always imagine the person at the back of the room quietly muttering, it'll never work, it'll never work. I do love American optimism. You do it so much better than your cousins across the pond. And one of the people who has been a significant factor in the success of the theatre over the past two decades is Quinn Gresham, who, as luck would have it, is my guest this evening. Such a delight having your august company back on the show once more, Quinn. It is always a pleasure to visit with you. And I have learned in your introduction that I am perhaps a Brit by nature. (laughs) Which is my first question. I was going to say, had you been there in those early meetings, which was a long time before your birth, I realized that. But had you been there, would you have been on the gung-ho side of the table or rolling your eyes at the back of the room and singing the it'll never work ditty? It's hard to imagine that moment where a couple of couples in town, uh, the Argybrights and the Lawrences, decided that they would buy an old church for the cost of the lumber uh, that they were about to tear down without really being theater folk themselves and uh, just started reaching out to see who might be in charge of the first season at the Lyceum Theater. There's very little about that if it were occurring today, that I think anybody would get behind. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, the, the 60s were a very different time. And uh, there, there was, I believe, uh, more of a capacity to dream beyond the rational, which I, I guess as any dream should, and just jump off the cliff and get this thing started. There was nothing practical about that choice. It was just a real passion, love and desire. And that's where we were born. It is an incredible story, the last 60 years, which I know we could spend at least three hours talking about. But 
we are in fact here to talk about the present and the future of your summer season which just got underway last week so we have six shows to cover in about 12 minutes starting with Shrek the musical in which the mother of speaking of the arts Monica Palmer is playing the wicked witch and she does do witchiness so well so what else do we need to know about Shrek other than it closes this weekend so people had better be fast if they want to see it. And at this point, there are very few tickets available. So I would say if you would like to see it, call immediately. Uh, Shrek the Musical is a real delight. Uh, it is, a, uh, of course, based on the DreamWorks animated film, a sort of a fractured fairy tales approach to familiar characters uh, like Pinocchio, the Wicked Witch, the Fairy Godmother, the Big Bad Wolf. The list goes on and on and on. But at the center of the story is an ogre named Shrek, perfectly content, living a reclusive life on his swamp, which is interrupted by a bunch of recently exiled fairy tale characters who have been sent away by Lord Farquaad from the uh, the kingdom of Duloc to live on Shrek's swamp. Shrek, Shrek, of course, doesn't want them there, so he goes to find Lord Farquaad to find out what he can do to get them off his swamp. Turns out all he has to do is rescue a princess from a dragon-guarded tower, and uh, complexities and hilarity ensue. It's really interesting because it's a very funny show. It's incredibly engaging. Every single song is just a delight. But what I think surprises audiences is how much the show touches on very universal human matters. Shrek's eventual desire to make his feelings known to a princess who, by all outward appearances, is uh, far above his station. (laughs) It is one of the most charming and immediately relatable moments in the entire show. So yes, you get lots of great laughs, but you also get an incredibly heartfelt experience thanks to the wonderful cast that is making the story come to life every single night. And that closes this Sunday, I believe. Is that right? That's right. Okay, so move fast, people. And so then we move from a mythical once upon a time sort of land to New Jersey to meet up with Frankie Castelluccio, Tommy DeVito, Bomb Gaudio and Nick Masso, who, of course, became Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. The musical Jersey Boys ran for 12 years on Broadway and is a documentary style jukebox musical divided into, no surprise, four seasons. Tell us about those seasons, Quinn. Well, it's really interesting because it is sort of a different kind of fairy tale, a, a rags to riches sort of story about uh, Frankie Valley and uh, and the Four Seasons and the music that they created that was a completely unique sound in the musical fabric of the 1960s and into the 1970s. It is a, a real challenge to put that show together in terms of uh, recreating that particular sound. And we're very fortunate to have a, a gentleman named Michael Ingersoll directing the production. Michael uh, is the creator and has been involved in a show called Under the Street Lamp, which has appeared several times at the Lyceum Theater. He has a wealth of knowledge about uh, Jersey Boys and has put together a remarkable cast. I was able to listen to uh, the Four Seasons uh, singing through some of their songs actually moments ago, and they sound fantastic. And what for me, what makes Jersey Boys a unique beast among the jukebox musicals is that the story is incredibly well told. It is told in a theatrical way, but also in a very sincere, honest, and heartfelt way as well. So yes, you get to hear all of those great songs, but I think you also get to understand the character of the four seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall, uh, as they travel through good times and difficult times. 
So just as an aside, so you've got you've got rehearsals going on and you've got a show on the stage. I mean, is it a one week crossover between shows usually? It's about that. Yes. Uh, so we started uh, rehearsals for Jersey Boys the Sunday after Shrek opened on a Thursday. So we, we moved from one right into the other uh, pretty quickly. And there are shared cast members in the shows. Mm. And so to work at the Lyceum and to do double duty or sometimes triple duty is an experience that uh, is uh, one certain certainly to uh, be remembered. It's a tremendous <laughs> amount of work, but we're very fortunate to have incredibly diligent professional artists working for us that are able to do all of those things at the same time, performing as a fairy tale character during the day and rehearsing in the evening in the cast of Jersey Boys. So then for the summer's third show, you stay in the world of music, though this one a little more fictional, but inspired by the true story of Diana Ross and the Supremes. Tell us about the Dream Girls and how the musical follows the story of the Supremes. Well, it's interesting because we have the Jersey Boys also in the same time period and then Dream Girls, which, as you say, is a fictionalized version of the Supremes. It is very close to the reality of Diana Ross and the Supremes, but fictionalized enough that the any licenses taken are not uh, offensive to anyone. Dream Girls is hands down one of my all-time favorite musicals. It is nearly an opera. Most of it is sung through, although there are some occasional book scenes throughout. And the music of the show is so powerful, so moving, so human. And there are moments within it where that music drives into me more deeply than just about any other musical I've ever seen. And uh, we're very excited to have Deidre Goodwin, who many people may know uh, from her appearance in uh, the film of Chicago and many other terrific performances on Broadway. She really is a legend in the dance world and we're so happy that she's joined us to direct and choreograph a terrific cast to make one of my all-time favorite musicals come to life. Moving on, Act 4 of the Lyceum's summer season. We are going to hop forward from the 60s to the 80s and from music to murder mystery with the comedy Clue, which is adapted from the screenplay, which in turn was adapted from the board game and features, and I have to quote the New York Times here, they gave a great rundown, a handsy shrink, Professor Plum, a vivacious madam, Miss Scarlet, a gay Republican, Mr. Green, a dim-witted colonel, a multiple divorcee, Mrs. White, and a senator's wife with a drinking problem, Mrs. Peacock. It's a pretty good rundown. It is. What do you love most about this play? I grew up seeing the film Clue in the movie theaters. I still remember going to see it. And it when when the, the film was released, it was released with different endings depending on where you saw it. When I saw it, I, I remember this very clearly, Mrs. Peacock was the killer. But that would not have been the case if I'd seen it in a different theater. The, the performances in that film are iconic in my mind between, uh, gosh, Martin Mull, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Leslie Ann Warren, Christopher Lloyd, every single one of them are just comedy legends. And there, there has been a previous adaptation of Clue. There's a musical version of it, which for me was, you know, more focused on the board game and largely disregarded the film version, which was so sewn into my uh, childhood memories. And when Clue, the film, was adapted into a stage version, I was over the moon. And this is actually the Missouri professional premiere of it. It is fairly new. And everything that you remember from the film will be there, of course. But also new things, because it is an adaptation of a film. Uh, things have to change in order to make them work on stage. But one thing that doesn't change, and this is a really exciting prospect, is that Mr. Body's mansion and all of its various rooms where murders 
will likely take place have to be represented on stage. And our scenic designer, Ryan Zerngable, has built a wonderful, wonderful landscape for all of these uh all of these events to play out. But what I think ultimately is the most fun thing about Clue is that, yes, it's a murder mystery. Yes, there are multiple crimes to solve, but it also plays in a lot of ways like a French farce. So it, it is going to be incredibly funny in addition to uh, the exciting whodunit element. And I won't reveal any more about it. <laughs> and from a remote mansion, we're off to my neck of the woods, globally speaking at least, Sherwood Forest for Ken Ludwig's The Adventures of Robin Hood and a dose of comedy thrills, romance, greed and inhumanity, which sounds rather like an episode of The Bachelor. <laughs> I have to say that plays featuring American actors doing English accents always makes me slightly anxious, but I am sure that on the Lyceum stage, I should have no fear that I will be anything other than convincingly transported to my homeland. We have discussed this before, and it is always a risk uh, when you have a true Brit in the audience listening to <laughs> Americans doing their best UK dialects. We have a tremendous company of actors put together for the show, uh, many of whom I actually all of them, I believe I have uh, worked with in British plays. So uh, no worries there. I think you can come to the theater uh, comforted that that will not be something that will irritate you. In addition to uh, the the Britishness of it, it is also a mad-capped romance adventure. And you can't have Robin Hood on stage without arrows flying across the stage, broadsword fights, quarterstaff fights. So really, there will be something for everyone in this very theatrically told version of that great legend. And by now, it is the end of September, and you're going to serenade us into the fall with a night of Rodgers and Hammerstein music featuring 30 hit songs from 11 of their musicals and after that final note of the season you get a couple of months to vacuum the dressing rooms before it's Christmas but we'll talk about that later in the year so that's it at the end of the season any final last word on on the Rogers and Hammerstein show it is some of the greatest music ever written and uh, to include all of it in one evening of theater I think is just going to be a real delight for our audiences you know we uh, the early part of the season features more contemporary musicals and we really wanted something that capitalized on the golden age of musicals and uh, A Grand Night for Singing was the perfect choice well if my mother were alive she would be there with bells on she loved mm -hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals to peruse the full schedule and details for each show head to lyceumtheatre.org and and Quingresham, may the stage rise up to meet you. Theatrical enchantment prevail and children who kick the back of people's seats be devoured by dragons. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for your eloquence and time. Bless you for those wishes. <laughs> And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, director Chris Bowling and actor Ada Chapman from Maplewood Barn, director Casey Lynch from the University of Missouri Theatre, director Ed Hansen and actors Adam Bretsky and Natalie Botkins from Talking Horse Productions, and from the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock, producing artistic director Quinn Gresham. 
Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!